welcome to the TechniConnect Automotive Podcast, aimed at inspiring the next generation of EE-related talent to choose a career within our space, whilst also supporting the current EE talent pool in making key career decisions. In each episode, we interview industry leaders to discuss their unique career paths, advice for those starting out in the automotive industry, as well as important issues currently impacting the sector. My name is Ferris, and I'm responsible for connecting automotive businesses to the best EE-related talent. Today, we are joined by Stephen Lambert from McLaren Applied, who spearheads the Business Electrification Product Strategy and Program Management Division. Stephen's career today has been remarkable. He got into the EV tech space early on and has played a pivotal role in world-class projects for renowned businesses such as Lotus and McLaren Racing. He also spent several years working in the intense environment of Formula One, where he's developed one of the most effective battery systems to date. In this episode, we'll explore Stephen's exceptional career, valuable insights for growing a successful team, as well as the career advice he would give to his younger self. Hi, Steve. First of all, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Very good, as always. Um, Let's start with some introductions, if it's okay, Steve. Do you want to give an introduction of yourself? Yeah, so hi, I'm Steve Lambert. I am Head of Electrification at McLaren Applied. Uh, What that means is I look after our electrification product strategy, um, and also our program management. So uh, any electrification products we develop, um, I make sure we're, we're developing the right thing and we can get them to our customers on time. Brilliant. And before we go into your career, which is a, an interesting one, who's Steve outside of work and what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? Yeah, well, I'm um, first and foremost, I'm a father. I've got two two great children. Um, so that's that's a lot of what my time is spent on. And any other time I have... Um, it's uh, I've got an old uh, Victorian house I'm renovating at the moment, so uh, I don't do as much engineering as I'd like to in in work. So I try and knock walls down and get my hands dirty where I can. Brilliant, brilliant. And we'll jump into your career. Um, so you had an interesting start. You started with computer science, wasn't it? And then you pivoted. Yeah, it was. I when 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 I was there, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a computer programmer. I thought that was that was quite cool and. Uh, then I got to university and started studying it, and um, by that point, actually, I started driving, um, and um, actually realised I quite liked cars and uh, quite liked mechanical engineering. So I, I pivoted my degree somewhat. It was it's half with engineering, half with computer science uh, to do a bit more electrical mechanical engineering. No problem. Where, where did you study? That was at the uh, University of Warwick, where I did both my uh, undergraduate masters and uh, my uh, doctorate as well. No problem. And you took part in Formula Student. I did, yeah. I did from a student um, in my third and fourth year of university, and then actually my uh, my PhD was linked to what was then called Formula Hybrid, but I think it's been uh, pulled into Formula Students since, which was all around building sort of electric uh, electric Formula Student cars. Brilliant. Brilliant. And then after your studies, how how did things grow from there? Yeah, well, I started in my in my doctorate. I started working for or working with, I should say, uh, Westfield Sports Cars. So I built a hybrid Westfield. That was great fun. I managed to uh, drive up the hill at Goodwood, um, which was which was a great experience. And then um, I, I went on to work for Lotus, um, building um, demonstrator vehicles, hybrid electric demonstrator vehicles, which was uh, which was which was great fun. Brilliant. And after after Lotus, after Lotus, I was an engineering manager at a battery company, um, and then uh, started working in battery systems engineering for McLaren Formula One. Um, so we were developing uh, the uh, battery system for uh, for our engine partner at the time, um, and uh, basically we were told to go and build the best battery you could do um, that was possible at the time. And um, yeah, it was it was a great time to be working in Formula One. 
I'm saying obviously F1 to a lot of people pinnacle pinnacle of engineering. How was your experience? Did you did you love the F1 or? I really enjoyed working in Formula One. Um, you know, people talk about Formula One being stressful, and it is. But I think what's great is that they they, they, they realise their stress, and actually that it's all set up to manage that, and you can just focus on your little bit of what you're doing. So, in some ways, it was the least stressful job I've ever had. It was busy, but it wasn't stressful because they they look after you, and they you know they they want to get the best out of you. Um, I guess my only claim to fame really in uh, Formula One is the fact that I was part of the least successful McLaren team in history. Um, so <laughs> my, my bragging rights aren't, uh, aren't, aren't great, but it'd be, you know, what I'll say is the battery system we developed was one of the best on the grid. Well, yeah, we, we can definitely go with that secondary factor. Yeah. <laughs> um, you then finished from McLaren. Was it then you set up, uh, was it Veyon? Yeah, well, it didn't set up Veyon, but I went in and uh, I, I was managing director of uh, Veyon Energy Storage, which was one part of what was then Veyon Group. Um, Veyon had bought up a number of uh, smaller companies uh, as the industry was kind of coalescing around electrification um, Veyon bought up a number of smaller companies and um, I was looking after the energy storage part of that which was all around batteries um, that lasted a couple of years um, and then I moved to McLaren Applied um, where I started as uh, head of electrification there looking at setting up the electrification strategy in automotive Brilliant, fantastic You've had a, all, all through your career you've Got into EV tech quite early, and then you've you've, you've covered a lot of the angles, haven't you, of the EV tech spectrum now? Yeah, I think I've been very lucky when I, um, you know, when I started doing my my PhD as it was then. Um, you know, hybrid electric vehicles weren't weren't really a thing. I think there was the uh, the Toyota Prius was about, um, and there was talk of us coming into Formula One, but it was it was really the early days of uh, of electrification. So I was I was quite lucky to get into it uh, when I did really. Absolutely, and then you know we look back in your career now. What's been your flagship moments? What are you most proud of now when reflected? Oh, um, I would say some of the stuff I did at Lotus. You know, we were we were really ahead of ahead of the pack when it came to developing hybrid electric vehicles. We did the uh, Rolls Royce One Hundred Two EX, which was um, a really amazing concept car. Um, obviously, working in Formula One was great. Um, I've worked on some great projects in my time. Some I can't talk about. Um, you know, one project. Uh, I worked on uh, broke the broke the record um, at um, the, the Nurburgring for electric vehicle. Um, uh, you know, it's it's it, I've, I've had the, I've had the honour of working on some really really exciting and fun projects. Um, so there's not there's not necessarily one thing, but a lot of a lot of individual individual projects. Absolutely. And then, based on your career experience now, one of favourite parts of the podcast. If you could now go back to Steve at 16 years old, what would you tell yourself on, on reflection? First off, don't do software engineering because you're not going to enjoy it. Yeah, um, <laughs> that'd be the first thing. No, I mean, I, I, I did enjoy software engineering, but I, I liked cars a bit bit more. I think. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I think I've I've really enjoyed my career. I think I've, I've been really lucky in the. Um, opportunities I've had but I think there's been an element of luck in it um you know when I came out of university I was a little bit aimless I was uh living in a pub um running the pub and driving lawyers at the same time didn't really have have much of a plan until my uh supervisor gave me a call and said or my, my old supervisor gave me a call and said you want to come and do a PhD and really if it wasn't for that I wouldn't have gone down the, the road that I did do whereas I look at the people I was at university with who were very proactive in finding internships or uh, use an industry, um, and they really were able to de- develop their career a lot faster than I was able to. And so I think that that's the one thing I would do is make sure you 
be proactive at a younger age. Get that experience behind yourself and you know, generate those opportunities for yourself. No, really, Gordon. Obviously, with engineers coming through now, what, what further advice would you give them regarding like studying? Yeah, so when we look at automotive um, engineering, you know, still the most popular degree for for students is mechanical engineering, and and that's that's great. But the the, the automotive industry is changing, and so I think certainly trying to ha- have a look at or or focus on electronic engineering or power electronics is really really important. Even if you're doing you know pure mechanical engineering, understanding how what your design is going to work. In the in the sphere of high voltage, um, or in the you know when when you have electronic components, what the heat generation is going to be of those components, how that impacts what you're designing, is it's really really important. That that's probably one of the big changes in the automotive industry is how we're designing for electronics and electrical um, electrical systems. Absolutely, and that 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 I think where the with the way engineering departments have been structured historically, it's been very much mechanical, hasn't it? Then you've got electronics, then you've got software. Now the the synergy between the three it's like the silo is breaking, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, you know, part part of my role to some extent when I was working in Formula One was helping the mechanical engineers there understand how they have to design and take into account for for, for batteries for high voltage, you know, creepage and clearance. What happens when you have a thousand volts touching some components? How do we design for that? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and that that's just becoming commonplace now in, in the automotive industry of today. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's a re- it's a really key take. I think if you're going to study. If, even if you do the others, you know, if you study mechanical, if you study electronics, try and understand all three, four disciplines ultimately, wherever possible. Um, not great. You've had experience yourself, Steve, of growing departments, running your own company. You know, how important has it been growing a diverse workforce that's contributed to success? Yeah, I think, think diversity is, is, is massively important. Um, you know, I, I personally like to encourage a environment of being able to challenge you know, if somebody has an idea, whether it be you know a senior manager or a uh, or a, a graduate, um, you know they feel they can challenge the ideas that are going on, so that we can get the most robust solution to whatever problem it is we're looking at. And you know, ultimately, if everybody comes from the same background, they look at these things in the same way. So, having cultural diversity, gender diversity, um, you know, any form of diversity is a good thing. Um, you know, and and when we're working in engineering. It is a problem that we do have a lack of diversity, and it is difficult finding a diverse workforce. And you've got to go out there and really, really encourage and look for and encourage people to to apply for the jobs. You know, particularly particularly women. Um, you know, McLaren applied. We we don't do too bad at cultural diversity, but we you know we we do have gender diversity, but we could be better. And so this is something we're actively actively trying to address. Um, but you know there there, there is the, the problem that there aren't that many women working in the industry or aren't coming through university in the industry at the moment, and uh, you know that 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 is an issue. No, absolutely. And, and you know, as part of your remit at McLaren Applied, I think you both you've identified yourself and as an overall company the importance of like integrating people into the team before they've even started, uh, and it's it's bringing that culture together really early doors. Absolutely, it's it's really important that when we do bring people in as well, you know, there's there's you know. Hiring people is essentially a marketplace. So if you've got somebody coming in, you want to make sure they want to stay with you. Um, you know that that's a good thing to do from a business point of view, but it's it's, it's a good thing to do anyway from a person to person point of view. So when 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 we make a uh, when we make a hire, um, you know typically we'll ask people to come in and get to know the team, um, let them see the sort of things they'll be working on, understand how the company works. So 
when they then do start working, they can come in and hit the ground running and they'll feel more comfortable. There won't be any any big surprises. Um, but also, you know, hopefully help with the tension, help help making sure those people will, will want to stay working from a town applied and, uh, you know, hopefully then find other people who want to and be an ambassador for us from a town applied. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's a good strategy. So we look at, if we look at the EE automotive industry now over the next five, 10 years, you know, people are going to come into this space. What would you recommend engineers to focus on from a, from a technical perspective? So I personally think, you know, one, one area there where there's a big gap and it's going to be really, really important is uh, power electronics. So um, I, I guess the, the issue is it's, it's not easy. I often joke that I, I got into batteries originally because the maths was easy. Um, you know, it's it's vehicles IR and P equals IV is kind of the, the most complicated it gets at a high level. Um, and power electronics isn't, you know, power electronics, you do need to understand things in a bit more detail. Um, but it's really where a lot of the value, a lot of the complexity, a lot of the difficulties, challenges, and therefore the opportunities are in the automotive industry today. Um, you know, the the type of power electronics you use, you know, could start to be the same as, you could start to be synonymous with whether you had a turbo or GT car back in, you know, back, back in the day. So, you know, and understanding power electronics and, and, and making sure that, um, you know, that, that, that that's a real area for focus in the automotive industry. I think there's a, there's a lot of gaps and a lot of opportunities for people coming into the automotive industry. Yes, I totally agree with this. I totally agree. And, you know, if we look at the industry as a, as a, as a wider piece, what do you think's up and coming? Is there anything that you feel is going to impact the sector over these next few years? Yeah, so we're, we're working a lot with uh, silicon carbide. So, um it's uh, it is a switching technology. Um, most most um, power electronics use silicon. Um, automotive are moving towards silicon carbide. We at McLaren Applied have had a, over ten years' experience working with silicon carbide with Formula One and Formula E, um, and so we're really taking that into automotive because we're seeing a big step change. We're seeing a lot of um, a lot of movement towards wanting to drive a lot of efficiency into vehicles and into drivetrains. And that's really what we've been doing in Formula One and Formula E. For both, both those, both those multiple, both those multiple series of competitions around efficiency, particularly when it comes to the drivetrain. And uh, Formula One cars are now 60 percent efficient, which is which is incredible. And and Formula E, you get a set amount of energy and a set amount of power. The only way you get technical benefit is by being more efficient than than your opponent. So that's really really important. And we we call that the third wave of electrification. Uh, the first, the first wave was uh, Elon Musk, essentially um, the early adopters, um, bringing out uh, electric vehicles. The second wave is really the sort of start of mass adoption where we are now. Um, so every OEM has an EV, or you can go into a dealership and we'll be selling you EVs. We're starting to see mass adoption and acceptance. Um, but really, what what we're now starting to see is competition competition between those OEMs and that's all going to be around efficiency if you have a more efficient drivetrain you can have a smaller battery if you have a smaller battery your vehicle will be lighter your car will cost less uh, you can charge faster for a given distance um, if it's lighter then you need less energy again so you can because because the vehicle's lighter so actually you can make the battery a little bit smaller again you need less cooling system you, you start to make yourself a better vehicle and then then we actually think the fourth wave is going to be all around driver experience so you know EVs are great um, you know, they go from 0 to 60 really, really quickly. It's really interesting that they sort of taken the question of performance away from where it used to be. Any, any, you can go and buy a car for 35 grand now um, as an EV that allows you to accelerate 
what a Lamborghini might have done 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's fine, isn't it? Really? I mean, they're just crazy to some extent, but they all, they don't necessarily do anything else in a, in a performance. You know, that what performance is in an EV context hasn't really been answered. And so we think, you know, following efficiency, it's all going to be around uh, driver experience. How do you engineer character into a car? How do you make the drivetrain more engaging? All of these sorts of things are going to start to be really important as well. Absolutely, especially if you're looking to appease the petrol heads in the industry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I don't think fake noise is going to be the answer. It's all going to be around drive, drive, making an engaging drivetrain. That's going to be around a efficiency to make the car better, but that driver experience, whether it's fine motor control or highly responsive drivetrain you know you know there are things you can do with ev drivetrains that you just can't do with a petrol engine car and we're just starting to understand those the the, the facts that you've mentioned about uh, we're in like a competition phase couldn't agree more it's like the, the way i tend to break it down is any inverter type business whether it's a tier one or they're doing in-house as a, an oem any business that's trying to make the next efficient electric motor it's literally the race to make the best system because obviously the opportunity ahead is is huge Absolutely, and there's there's so much learning to happen. There's a great example is um, there was a test done by Autocar a few months ago um, where they tested eleven electric vehicles. Um, top top of the list was the Porsche Taycan, absolutely amazing car. You know, handles really well. It's it's a really well designed electric vehicle. Second of the list was a BMW i40. Again, really good car, fun to drive. And it's like, and this was a list of what the, the the most fun to drive cars were. Third was the Kia EV6. Um, and then, you know, so you're now in a position where you've got a Kia being compared favorably to a BMW and a Porsche. You know, that, that wouldn't have happened five years ago. That, that just wouldn't have happened. And so it's uh, it's a really interesting time and, and shows what can be achieved by really understanding electric vehicle technology. Kia Hyundai has done a really good job of designing around efficiency. And and that's one of the reasons why that car is, 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 is so fun to drive. What, what, what's your perspective on the uptake of hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cell technology? Uh, I think hydrogen will have its place, um, but but not in automotive. There will be there will be edge cases where it makes sense potentially in off highway, agriculture, construction, um, possibly um, long distance um, haulage. Uh, but I think but I think batteries are proving now that even even today's battery technology. You know, the, 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 the have answered the case for passenger vehicles and are starting to answer the question around uh, commercial vehicles as well. So I think hydrogen will have its place, um, but it's not going to be a mainstay fuel of the future for, for mass mass transit. We've seen, we've seen you know, for, in order for EVs to be the complete normality, we need to see the transition in the supply chain as well. Obviously, I've seen a few things in, in the industry you know, I won't name companies in particular, but companies have struggled. They've done all the really good pre-development work. They've got all concepts out, and then actually, when they've tried to go into mass production, it's fell down because of the supply chain. What, what's what's the challenges here, Steve, from your perspective, and what needs to be done ideally? So, you know, there's there's, there's two things that have happened at the same time, um, which which has kind of been unfortunate. Unfortunate. Um, obviously, we had the pandemic, um, and what meant what that meant was essentially the automotive industry was shut down. Nobody, nobody was buying cars. Um, this, the supply, the, the demand was turned off by the OEMs, and as such, all the silicon manufacturers turned their attentions to other things they could make, such as the laptops, because everybody was buying laptops because they're working from home. Um, the problem is when you when you do a change like that in something like the silicon industry, it's got a two, three, four year cycle time. Um, and so, what we found then was 
what happened at the same time as the pandemic was really the electric revolution happened in in mobility and everyone started buying electric vehicles partly driven by seeing less smog about but partly just because the technology became mature at the same time um and so what we're starting to see is huge amounts of silicon in electric vehicles coupled with a lack of supply of silicon <laughs> you know the, the, these two things have really just kind of created this perfect storm and the industry still you know it's getting better but there are still long lead times for, for, for a lot of vehicles at the moment um and you know we're also seeing i mentioned earlier silicon carbide which relies on very similar types of supply chains we think we're going to see a big big demand in silicon carbide as as we go into this competition phase um you know big demand is going to come on silicon carbide and at the moment the fabs aren't aren't quite there to to supply that demand there's a lot of investment going in um you know billions and billions of investment is going in by by companies um but it's you know more more needs to be done. You know there's a lot of talk around building battery factories, gigafactories, um, but, but really we need the same sort of focus on building fabs, which is where where uh, where devices are made. Building these fabs, silicon carbide, um, to make sure that you know we have supply enough supply of these components. Yeah, absolutely. And it, we've, we've talked about the electric motors, and obviously for a lot of these motors you need rare earth. Rare earth sources, don't you? And how do we reduce that? I think I think to be fair, the automotive industry does well is really gets down deep into the supply chain. So when you look at the battery supply chain, there's been a lot of um, talk on the impact of uh, battery materials, and actually because of that focus, the battery industry has really managed to make sure that their supply chain is clean. You know, they they their mine the mines are clean. Then they're not you know they're not using sorts of labour they shouldn't be. You know, there's been a big focus on that. There, there's a, you know, there are other supply chains that could do with an equal amount of focus. And, in, and an interesting one is the rare earth magnet supply chain. Um, so a lot of our motors are made with rare earth magnets, but at the moment, the supply chain isn't as clean as it could be. Um, there, there's a lot of environmental fallout from some of the mines they're made in. Um, and a lot of OEMs are pushing towards using non-rare earth magnet machines. Um, but again, what this means is you're probably going to go to something called an EESM motor, so externally excited synchronous motor, um, which actually means you're going to want more power electronics in your vehicle. So what you start doing is you start driving a current in your rotor, in the motor, instead of using a magnet, um, which means you want more power electronics. So yes, there's going to be some cleanup of the supply chain, but also there's going to be technical um, answers to that as well. It's really interesting. And we talked about the efficiency through the drivetrain and, and the relevant components. The other area, isn't it, is looking at the charging infrastructure and how, how you know, you don't want to be waiting. You know, let's go back to consumer. You don't want to be waiting an hour or, you know, when you can fill your car up in, in two minutes using petrol. So what, what, what do you think is coming from a charging perspective? Yeah, so we, we think the industry is going to move to 800 volts. Um, most of the cars you buy today are 400 volts. Um but that limits your charge capability to you know 150 kilowatts, something like 200 kilowatts, perhaps. Um, if you go to 800 volts, it basically means you can push twice as much um, power down the cable into the car as you could at 400 volts, um, and that allows for sort of charge charge currents about 350 kilowatts. And that's one of the reasons why both the Taycan and the sort of Hyundai Kia offerings are able to charge in you know 20, 20 minutes or something like that. It's a it's a real game changer for how do you buy and how you use your electric vehicles? You're going to stop, you know, as well. I think there's also, it's also going to help make electric vehicles more affordable by then having smaller batteries. So if you have a smaller battery, but you can charge it in 10, 15, 20 minutes, 
well, you know, actually then you can start using it much more like you would do with an IC engine vehicle. You know, most, most, most journeys are less than 10, 20, 30 miles. So you, you don't really need to charge that often and charging at home or um, on the street is, is probably suitable for a lot of people. But it's only when you do want to do those, those longer, those longer journeys that you'll then start fast charging. And so for the few times a year you do that, you can do that and it's not an impact. Yeah, I think you've given us a, a really good flavour of what the current challenges are and what's what's coming up. And I think if, if we can go through that transition as a whole industry over the next five, ten years, we'll see the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see the outcome. And the, the million-dollar question, if you like, but from, from your perspective and your perspective only, Steve, you know, why why develop a career within the automotive industry? Um, firstly, cars are cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think, you know... Uh, there, there are some very unique challenges. You know, you get to work on something quite cool, but in a very structured and detailed way. Um, you know, when I look at my career, I've, had, I've worked a lot of fun cars. I've driven cars at the Hill of Goodwood. Um, I've worked in Formula One. Um, you know, some some really interesting projects. Um, but we were the really, really top of the industry focus in terms of, you know, be working for the best companies, um, you know, with the best people. Um, with the best technology, you know, really being at the forefront of technology and that that working on interesting projects with with the best people, the best technologies is is incredibly rewarding. Yeah, no, absolutely, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for for joining us, and thank you very much for the insights. No, thank you, Ferris. It's been my pleasure.